This is extremely exciting. Uh, we're studying Isaiah. We'll be studying Isaiah over the next uh, five weeks. And um, Isaiah is a remarkable book. Uh, it really is unparalleled in, in the whole of Scripture. Uh, Isaiah begins with a sin-stained city, the city of Jerusalem, and it ends with the celestial city. Okay? It begins with uh, a guilty people in the beginning of Isaiah, and it ends with glorified people. Okay? Uh, and in the middle, in the middle of Isaiah, he describes the one, the servant of the Lord, who will come and save the people, save the city, and make the transition from sin to salvation, from guilty to uh, glorified, from polluted to um, pardoned, okay? And Isaiah uh, does it in a, in a masterful way. The book, um, like I said, is really unparalleled. It is the second most quoted Old Testament book in the New Testament, just kind of highlighting its importance in the Old Testament. Uh, behind Psalms, of course, Psalms is the most quoted. But Psalms and, Je- and Isaiah far exceed any other Old Testament book it quoted in the New Testament. The third most is like Jeremiah. At, it's quoted like seven times maybe. Isaiah is quoted 65 times in the New Testament. Um, and we'll talk about why it's quoted and what the New Testament authors are looking back to. Um, so Isaiah is a precious book as well. I know that if, I were, if we were to go around, I thought about doing this, but if we were to go around and, and I were to ask you what are some of your favorite verses in the Old Testament, I bet most of them might come from Isaiah. And you, can, you, know, you just ask the question, why is that? Like, what are, what are your favorite verses from Ezekiel, for example? Uh, and we would be hard-pressed to maybe come up with five. <laughs> but Isaiah is just packed full of comforting verses, convicting verses, hopeful verses. Um, so it is a wonderful book. And it's also a daunting book. John Calvin preached through the book of Isaiah. And do you have any, do you have any guesses at how many sermons he preached on Isaiah? Any guesses at all? Yeah, yeah, 120, that's close. That's not, actually not even half of how many he preached. 353 sermons Calvin preached on Isaiah. And we have five weeks here. <laughs> so... Um, this is, the purpose is just a survey, an overview of Isaiah, to look at the structure, the major themes, and uh, it's going to be wonderful. Isaiah has been called the fifth gospel. Have you heard him called that before? Because of how much time he spends on the Messiah, later to be revealed as Christ in the New Testament, the fifth gospel. He's also called the Messianic prophet because of all the prophets, he spends the most amount of time discussing the Messiah. So uh, here in the first week, the purpose is uh, to open up the atlas of Isaiah, as it were, and chart out where we're going to be going over the next five weeks, look at the major uh, stopping points along the way, and um, we're going to be looking at the historical background, the major themes, uh, and its application to us. So for you women who are in E4M, uh, this this is an extremely timely study because there's some difficult things in Isaiah related to hermeneutics that we will only touch on, but you can apply using what you've been learning in E4M. So uh, why don't I go ahead and pray, and then we will uh, dive in. Father, uh, I'm so thankful that we're able to study your word this morning. I'm thankful for uh, the elders here at Calvary, their commitment to studying the word, to teaching the word to your people. And we need your word, Father. We need uh, your word to have its effect on us. And you've told us that all Scripture is breathed out by you. And, uh, Father, we want to have that effect on us this morning, teaching, correcting, reproving, rebuking. So, Father, would you come and uh, teach us now from your word. I ask for your help in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, so if you would, start by turning to the table of contents of your Bible. And I just want to ask the question, why are we studying Isaiah right now? Okay, 
if you look at the table of contents, there's some major divisions just in how the canon of Scripture was arranged. And if you're new to Calvary, you may not know, but Calvary, there's a method to the, to the Sunday schools that we are going through, okay? Uh, it's not an exact science, but every so often we go through a book of the Old Testament. And if you were here, the last book we went through was Jer- uh, sorry, uh, uh, Lamentations, which was a little bit out of order for, uh, for a reason we went through Lamentations. But if you look, Isaiah uh, is the book that we're starting today. So all of the books previous to Isaiah, someone at some point in Calvary has taught through that book. It's, it's been a while, and I think we got here when we were going through First uh, Chronicles, maybe. So some of you have been here for longer than that. Some of you, um, this may be the first book that you've been through here at Calvary. Isaiah begins a major section, uh, a new section in the canon of Scripture. From here to the end of the Old Testament, we'll be in the prophets. It's divided into major prophets and then minor prophets. If you look in your table of contents, Isaiah, Jeremiah, uh, Ezekiel, and Daniel are the major prophets. They're simply called major because they're the longest books of the, of the prophets. The others are minor because they're smaller, and that's the only reason why. So, um, enough about that. If you would, turn to Isaiah chapter 1, which is after Song of Solomon. Isaiah chapter 1, and it begins, we won't get much farther than this, begins, the vision of Isaiah, the son of Amoz, which he saw concerning Judah and Jerusalem in the days of Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah, kings of Judah. Here at the beginning, Isaiah introduces his book by describing the author the setting, the location, the audience, the history, all in this very first verse. And I want to just unpack this, and, and we really do need to spend a lot of time explaining the context of Isaiah before we dive into the book. So the author, the author is clearly here, Isaiah. Uh, he references himself throughout the book. You can see even in, even in chapter 2, he begins, the word that Isaiah, the son of Amaz, saw concerning Judah and Jerusalem. Throughout the book, the internal testimony is that Isaiah wrote it. And in fact, the external testimony from the New Testament is that Isaiah wrote it. In the last couple years, a couple hundred years, there's been criticism uh, of who wrote Isaiah, and there's been theories that there was a second and a third author. And the only reason why alternative authors have been proposed is because uh, secular people hate the fact that Isaiah prophesied about events beforehand and they say that's impossible, therefore someone later must have written Isaiah. Uh, We know that God is the God of history, the God of prophecy. He declares the end from the beginning before it even happens, therefore it's not a surprise to us when Isaiah is able to predict things before they happen because he's a spokesman for God himself. Uh, The most important, well, one of the most important testimonies to the author of Isaiah is John chapter 12. I think I have that on your handout there where John explains Isaiah said this and Isaiah said that. What's important is he quotes from two different sections of Isaiah. There's a major break in the book of Isaiah after chapter 39, and you're probably already aware of that. From, from 40 onward is very different from how the first 39 chapters are written, which is where the critical scholars say the second author picked up the book. But what's so important about John chapter 12 is he quotes from both sections, part 1 and part 2, and he says that Isaiah wrote them both. So if any of you are uh, wondering whether Isaiah wrote the whole book or not, he did write the whole book, and I'm guessing you're not wondering that. So the time period, um, look there at the time period of Actually, I'm sorry, let me back up. Before we get to that, let me explain the, the name Isaiah, because I think you have a blank there. What does the name Isaiah mean? His name is important. It's the key to the whole book of Isaiah. His name means Yahweh is... Any of you know? 
Salvation, I heard it. Yahweh is salvation. That really is the key to the whole book. I think uh, for ladies in, in E4M, you, the professor Abner Chow explained that that is really the theme of the entire book of Isaiah. God saves. Yahweh saves. So the time period, that's the author, the time period. Isaiah wrote, here we see in verse 1, during the days of Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, Hezekiah, these were the kings of Judah. Isaiah had a long ministry from the year 740 B.C. to around the year 690. Fifty years he was prophesying, which was a long time. These kings, I, I won't necessarily have time to dig into these, but these kings, we know about all four of these kings if you look at the book of 2 Kings or 2 Chronicles. So feel free to dig into those kings more. I'll just say very quickly that Uzziah had a, was a, long, had a long reign where Judah prospered. Uh, king Ahaz was a wicked king. Uh, king Hezekiah was a good king, although he, uh, he ended poorly at the end of his life. So that's the setting. I do want to explain the historical context, though, of where Isaiah fits into the whole of redemptive history in the Old Testament and some of you will, are really liking this history lesson. Some of you are <laughs> probably already uh, have your eyes glazed over. But uh, the fall of Israel and the fall of Judah are enormously important in the history of the Old Testament people. So I have a couple blanks there. But the fall of Israel, what year did that happen? Not, not quite. So uh, let me back up. So uh, is, uh, it, the people of God, Israel and Judah, were one nation, right? And then Solomon was king. After Solomon died, there was a split. The nation was torn in two. The, the kingdom to the north became Israel. The kingdom to the south became Judah. Judah was taken into, ba- taken into Babylon but in 586. So that's your second blank there. The fall of Judah was 586 B.C. to the Babylonian Empire. And I know this is, it really is important to understanding the book, okay? That's why I'm laboring over this. The northern kingdom, when did they fall? Before or after Judah? Before? 722. Yeah, that's right, okay? So 722. It's important because the northern kingdom fell during Isaiah's uh, ministry. But the southern kingdom, the kingdom he's actually teaching to, Judah and Jerusalem, didn't fall for about 100 years after Isaiah had died. Okay, so everything he says is before Judah has been taken into exile. But uh, it's during his reign, sorry, not his reign, during his ministry that the northern kingdom is taken. And it's very important understanding the historical context of Isaiah. If you look down in the next table there, I have that table placing the prophets. I think this will be helpful to you. Really, these prophets, uh, there's, seven, there's 17 books of prophecy if you're looking at your table of contents. There's only 16 listed here because uh, Jeremiah and Lamentations are often grouped together because uh, Jeremiah wrote both of them. But uh, most of the prophets are speaking before the exile, before Babylon comes and takes the people away. There are two, two prophets who actually wrote while in the exile, Ezekiel and Daniel. And they're most, mostly apocalyptic in their prophecies. And then there are three who are, who, whose ministry lasted, uh, who were who ministering during the return, the returned remnant when they had come back. Okay, so again, this is critically important to how we understand the book. So uh, if you look at the next section here, it is the outline of the book of Isaiah. And if you just study the outline of Isaiah, it has been master planned. The entire book is remarkable in how it has been master planned from chapter 1 all the way to chapter 66. The major division, as I mentioned, is chapter 39, where most people group the first half of the book, 1 through 39, as the first part 40 to 66 as the second part. And what's remarkable about that is how many books are there in the Bible? 66. How many are in the Old Testament? 39. How many are in the New Testament? 27. The Bible falls along the same divisions as the book of Isaiah. And what's even more remarkable is the second half of Isaiah, chapter 40, begins with the voice of one calling in the wilderness. 
The New Testament begins with the ministry of John the Baptist, the voice of one calling in the wilderness. The second half of Isaiah ends with the new heavens and the new earth. The book, or sorry, the second half of the Bible, the New Testament, ends in Revelation with the new heavens and the new earth. The structure of Isaiah is worthy to be studied and uh, meditated on, just how God has laid out the book of Isaiah. Now, of course, an outline makes things simpler than they really are. So the first half of the book can be categorized as judgment, the second half of the book as salvation. But in reality, all throughout the first half, there's salvation intermingled. All throughout the second half, there's judgment intermingled. You can see I've broken down the outline if you want to see even more of the individual breaks in the outline. The first five chapters are somewhat of an introduction. Do you all, do you all know what chapter Isaiah describes his call to ministry? Chapter 6, that's right. Okay, so let, let's just think about some of the other prophets like Jeremiah, Ezekiel. When do they describe their call to the ministry? At the very beginning, at the very beginning. Okay, if you look at chapter 6, Isaiah begins by saying, In the year that King Uzziah died. Okay, that happened in the year four, sorry, 740 B.C., and then, if you continue reading in chapter 6, we'll get to this in later weeks, but that's where God calls and says, Whom shall I send? Who will go for us? And Isaiah answers the call, Here I am, send me, he says. The question is, why does it take Isaiah five chapters to get to his call? Uh, Isaiah, his ministry begins in chapter 6, which means he wrote chapters 1 through 5 later, at a later time after he had already been called. The question is, why does he place five, 1 through 5 at the beginning before chapter 6? Well, what's so important to understand is that Isaiah is not necessarily concerned about uh, writing a linear chronology from chapter 1 to chapter 65. Uh, there is kind of a general upward trend. Like I said, the end of the book is the new heavens and the new earth. The beginning of the book is Israel in total sin, rebellion, uh, and the question is, how does Israel get from here to there? So there's a general trend. Well, the answer seems to be that chapters 1 through 5 serve as an introduction. Really, you can read chapters 1 through 5 and get an introduction to the whole book of Isaiah. And so in chapter 1, he begins with condemnation for the people of Judah, their sins, and the city, the disrepair that the city has fallen into. If you look in chapter 21, Sorry, verse 21 of chapter 1. Isaiah describes the unfaith, how the city has become unfaithful in, in vulgar terms. But then chapter 2, he explains this is, what, this is what the city should have been like. And indeed, this is what the city will become one day. In the latter days, uh, the mountain of the house of the Lord, that's just Zion, the city of God, will be the highest city um, the highest of the mountains, it'll be lifted above the hills, all the nations will flow up to it. That's the ideal. Uh, and the people right now, when Isaiah begins his ministry, are a far cry from what God intended his city and his people to look like. So if you look at the uh, outline again, look over at the audience column. The first 39 chapters Isaiah is speaking directly to the people in Judah and Jerusalem before the exile. He is warning them. He is warning them to turn from their sin. He's saying judgment is coming. Babylon will come. You need to turn and repent. At the end of that section, verse uh, chapter 39, uh, Isaiah says, basically, this, it's a foregone conclusion. At this point, your fate is sealed. Babylon is coming. Um, and it's, it's too late at this point. So that's the first 39 chapters. Isaiah is preaching repentance, but at the, end of, at the end of 39, he says, essentially, it's too late. It's over. So Isaiah's message changes dramatically from chapter 40 through chapter 55. You see that in the section there where Isaiah begins his prophecy. He is now teaching to the future uh, faithful Jews in exile. 
Okay, <laughs> do you understand that? It's complicated because Isaiah is writing before any of this happens, but his audience has now changed, and that's why he begins chapter 40 with these words, Comfort, comfort my people, says your God. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem. Okay, he's no longer speaking terms of uh, judgment, indictment, condemnation. Rather, he's saying comfort. And it's because he's now speaking to the exiled Jews in exile. And he's telling them, don't worry, God still has a plan for you. He will bring you back to the land. So um, be comforted by that. And then they actually do return. If you remember in chapter 45, that's when Isaiah prophesies that Cyrus will bring back the people to the promised land. They will once again live in the promised land. So 56 to the end of the book changes where the exiles have now come It's sometime in the future. The exiles have come back to the land and they get there and they look around and they say, this is not at all what Isaiah prophesied. This is a far cry. Uh, I thought we were going to be at the top of the world. We're this small little remnant, a speck of dust. Uh, where is all the glory that he prophesied? Well, that's where 56 to the end of the book, Isaiah says, don't worry, it will come. Okay? And he, again, brings comfort and a sure word of prophecy that Jerusalem will be restored to its former glory, and in fact, exceed, far exceed what uh, Jerusalem was during the reign of Solomon, where it was at its kind of its peak of its influence in the world. So that is the structure of Isaiah, and there are a tremendous amount of minor details going on in there. Let me just say one more note, and again, this is getting a little complicated, but I think it's important for us to understand the first 39 chapters are describing the Assyrian Empire. Okay, it's called the Assyrian period. The second half of the book is the Babylonian period. Okay? So you need to remember your uh, ancient uh, dynasties. So the ABCs are helpful. Assyria, Babylon, Cyrus, who was a Persian. Okay? <laughs> ABC, <clears throat> Assyria, Babylon, Cyrus. So in the first half of the book, Judah is this small little nation, and Assyria is threatening to come into Israel, the northern kingdom. Okay? So Israel and another country called Syria. And in fact, if you, if you ch turn to chapter 7, you can see this. Chapter 7, Ahaz is king of Judah. He's a wicked king, remember? Chapter 7, verse 1. In the days of Ahaz, dot, 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 Rezin, the king of Syria, and Pekah, the king of Israel, came to Jerusalem to, siege, to wage war against it. So the historical context here is that Syria, which is different from Assyria, Syria and Israel have made an alliance, and they are now threatening Judah. Ahaz, who is a wicked king, asks Assyria, the Assyrian Empire, to help him. Okay? What happens then is Assyria says, okay, sure, we'll protect you. So then Assyria comes and destroys the northern kingdom and Syria. Does that make sense? <laughs> it's a little confusing, but it really is important to understanding the book. One commentator says that Ahaz's plea for help is like a mouse asking a cat to save him from another cat, <laughs> okay? So what happens is Assyria comes, destroys the northern kingdom, temporarily saves Judah, but then only a few years later, Assyria comes down to Judah and surrounds Jerusalem. Do you remember this is when King Sennacherib comes, Hezekiah is king, Hezekiah repents, turns to the Lord in help, and God miraculously saves Judah, from Assyria, okay? <laughs> We're getting into the weeds here, so maybe we should just move on. Um, let, me, uh, let me just explain um, some key words and phrases. If you look in your handout, this is incredibly helpful to look at some of the key words and phrases in Isaiah. 
The first you probably have heard before is the Holy One of Israel. Uh, I have a blank there. The total count, the total times Isaiah uses that word in his book is 25 times. The total number of times that phrase is used in the entire Old Testament is only 31. Okay? So 25 of the 31 times that phrase happens is in Isaiah. This is a unique aspect of Isaiah, and it's most certainly because of what he saw in chapter 6, which is why that theme, if you look, uh, there's basically the same number of times he uses that phrase in the first half of the book as the second half of the book throughout his whole 50-year ministry. He understood the holiness of God. I want you to see the next phrase, in that day, In that day, this word is used 42 times in Isaiah. It's a prophetic formula for judgment to come. Most times it's referring to the great day of judgment. And you can see 41 times it happens in the first half of the book, and only one time it happens in the second half of the book. So I just wanted you to see that highlights the difference between the first half and the second half. Overwhelmingly, the first half is judgment, second half is salvation. A very important term in the book of Isaiah is the word servant. Servant. Forty times in Isaiah, only nine times in the first half, 31 times in the second half. The second half of the book is all about the servant of the Lord. The question is, who is the servant of the Lord? Of course, the pinnacle, I didn't explain this earlier, the pinnacle of the second half of the book is chapter 53. Okay, the servant who would come and bear the iniquities of his people. If you, th- if you know how to do math, uh, there's 27 in the New Testament. Divide that by 2, 13.5. If you add 13.5 plus 40, you get to 53. 53 is placed in the middle of the second half of the book. The next term, salvation, the only thing I want you to see here, again, this is a favorite word of Isaiah. His name means uh, Yahweh saves salvation, and he uses it all throughout the book. Same in the old, uh, sorry, in the first half and second half, and then the word comfort there uh, again is predominantly in the second half of the book. So, just by doing some word studies, you can see there's some differences between the first half of the book and the second half. That's all I wanted to mention there. I've got some important themes listed in Isaiah that um, I think I'm going to pass over for now. <clears throat> You can see there are some themes that tie all throughout the book. One I've mentioned repeatedly, Isaiah emphasizes to put your trust in God and not rely on political allegiances. This is why I labored so much about the nations. Hezekiah is tempted to trust Egypt. In the end, chapter 39, he is tempted and does, in fact, place his trust in Babylon. Uh, we'll, we'll probably get to this, but he invites Babylon to come. Look at all of the gold I have stored up in chapter 39. And, uh, and essentially what he's doing is place, trying to uh, bring them into a treaty. He's showing them all of the gold and, and wants to invite their protection. Ends up being his downfall. That Babylon is the one who comes and uh, ransacks Jerusalem. Uh, we will uh, have to talk about the millennial kingdom, <laughs> and the end. we will have to touch on end times. Uh, I'll try to do it as tentatively as possible. I'll try to stick to scripture as much as possible, what I uh, understand Isaiah is saying, but uh, it's, it's, uh, it's an important theme that he talks about, the future kingdom, a glorified kingdom. Uh, the question is, and you can see one of the difficulties of Isaiah, is when is he... What timeline is he talking about? He uses this word, in that day, over and over. The question is, Isaiah, what day? What day are you talking about? Are you talking about the day when when Assyria comes and God destroys the the, uh, Sennacherib and, and, and gloriously saves Jerusalem? Or is he talking about the final day, the day of the Lord, where God miraculously saves Jerusalem again? That's the question. And the difficulty is, Isaiah is looking basically down the corridor of time, and he's got an object in front of him. And so the question is, is he prophesying about this object right in front of him? Or is his vision farther down, uh, and he's prophesying about the end time? And so that, that's one of the difficulties in Isaiah, that uh, you, 
really every, every uh, prophecy has to be studied in context um, carefully so we don't jump to conclusions. <laughs> Another difficulty of Isaiah is the New Testament usage of the Old Testament. And I know you all, ladies who are in E4M, have talked about hermeneutics. Did the New Testament authors revise the Old Testament? Did they use it in a way that the Old Testament authors didn't? Well, one of the most important test cases is chapter 7. Chapter 7 is where Isaiah prophesies that there will be, um, the virgin will conceive and bear a son. Okay, the question is, did the New Testament change who Isaiah was talking about? Was Isaiah talking about a different person in the Old Testament? And the very simple answer, uh, the very simple answer is no, they did not change the meaning uh, and the message of the Old Testament. And finally, a similar difficulty is the question of a millennial kingdom or eternal state. And I know that there's uh, differences even in this body about um, what Isaiah is talking about. And so, uh, you know, obviously the, the most important thing is getting the text right, um, not coming with preconceived notions about what it's saying, but what is this text, what is this word saying here in the Bible? Uh, the, other, the second most important thing is unity and love in the body, right? <laughs> so those are important things as we come to study Isaiah. So I only have a few minutes left because we have a surprise for you this morning. Uh, so I'm going to get off this, I'm going to get off, relinquish uh, control in just a little bit. I want to turn and just talk about application for a second. So I know we really didn't even dive into Isaiah. That'll come over the next five weeks. I wanted to set the stage and, and hopefully it was clear. Hopefully at least now you have more questions of, oh, um, I need to find out more about this or that. But let me, let me talk about just the application of Isaiah for a second. Uh, 1 Corinthians 10, Paul writes that these things in the Old Testament were written for our instruction, our example. All of Scripture is breathed out by God, and it's important for us to know, and um, it's for us. Okay, so how is it for us? How is Isaiah for us? The first point I wanted you to see is we are to heed God's warnings for authentic worship. This is one of the main indictments that, that God has for his people at this time. He says things like, You honor me with your lips, but your hearts are far from me. He says in chapter 1, like I said, <clears throat> chapter 1 is really an introduction for the whole of the book. In chapter 1, verse 12, he begins by saying, Essentially, uh, you guys are doing a great job of bringing your sacrifices on time. You're doing all the sacrifices as you're supposed to. Uh, except the problem is, I hate them. And he really does use that strong words. Look at verse 14. Your new moons and your appointed feasts, my soul hates. They have become a burden to me. I am weary of bearing them. The people at this time had heartless worship for God. They was only external worship. And God, through Isaiah, is telling them, turn, repent. If you look in verse 19, he says, If you are willing and obedient, you will eat the good of the land. But if you refuse and rebel, you shall be eaten by the sword. Okay, he is telling them to repent. This message, just want to point out, this message was written to God's people the nation of Judah, okay, God's people. Inside of God's people at this time, there were faithful and unfaithful Jews. It was a mixed body. It is the same for you and I today. We always, no matter if we are uh, true believers or false believers with um, an external appearance of a heart for God, we all need to be rebuked by this um, rebuke that we need to keep a close watch on how we are worshiping God when we go down to the worship service in just a little bit, are we singing with just our lips while our hearts are far from us? Okay, so this word is not primarily for the country of America, okay? This book, if you think this book is for America, America needs to turn, otherwise we're going to be judged soon, uh, you're missing the point of Isaiah, if you think this book is for the American church, the American church needs to turn, otherwise the American church will be judged. 
uh, you're missing the point of Isaiah. This book is for you, okay? It's for you. It's for all of us. I need to be rebuked by this and make sure that my worship is with a heart for God, not just external. Let me be clear. If you are a child of God, if you're saved by grace through faith, uh, there is therefore now no condemnation, right? No matter whether our worship is mixed uh, with a heartless worship, Christ has paid for that. From Isaiah 53, we know that he bore our sins, right? (laughs) So um, what it means is the response is the same. The response is repent, okay? If you find yourself worshiping with your lips, but your heart is somewhere else, repent. Turn and uh, place your heart in the same place where your lips are. And that's the second application there is repent and turn to the Savior. The book of Isaiah is full of calls. Come, come, God says, come. Isaiah 45, 22, God says, turn to me and be saved, all the ends of the earth, for I am God and there is no other. Chapter 55 says, come, all who are thirsty and hungry, come buy water and food without price, Actually, I think it says wine and food, (laughs) but we're Baptists here. (laughs) No, it says buy wine and food without price. Come. There's a free offer of the gospel, right? Because of the Savior, the servant, the Messiah, who perfectly obeyed where we did not obey. The third application is to find comfort in the shelter of a sovereign God. This is chapter specifically in chapter 40. 41, 43, some of our most cherished uh, passages of Scripture in the Bible, aren't they? Uh, if, you're, if, you're, if you're lying on your deathbed, chapter 40, chapter 41, chapter 43, that's, what I want. that's why we want someone to read to me, okay? The comfort from a sovereign God. I will strengthen you. I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. When you pass through the waters, through the fire, I will be with you. These are some of the most comforting Scriptures in all the Bible, And it's because we have a sovereign God who does with the peoples and nations as he pleases all for our good, right? Romans 8, 28. So in in Isaiah, we see a sovereign God who whistles for nations. He brings nations. He sends nations. He raises up nations. He puts down nations, all for the good of his people, okay? It's for judgment for the unfaithful. It's for discipline for the faithful, right? It's for discipline. It's for our good that he disciplines us. Finally, the final application I want you to see is to set your eyes on the kingdom to come. This is especially seen in in chapters 65, 66, where God paints a picture of the kingdom to come, which which, uh, Revelation picks up on. There will be no more tears, no more pain, no more suffering anymore. God will be with us as our God. We will be his people. The gates of the city will be open day and night. There'll be no more day or night because God is there and the light of God will, uh, will light up the city day and night. And it is a picture of incredible comfort and hope when we're in the middle of suffering and, um, and trials. So that is application for us today. Even today, you can go right now, if you're in the middle of a trial, you can go to chapter 40, chapter 41 of Isaiah, chapter 65, chapter 66, and find comfort and hope from Isaiah. This book is for you, it's for me. So I sincerely hope that this has not <laughs> confused you this morning. Um, uh, I hope it's given you a hunger for Isaiah. I hope it's opened your eyes to see how complex Isaiah is, how God has masterfully planned the book of Isaiah, how we could spend a lifetime studying Isaiah. Uh, one, of the, one of the best commentaries on Isaiah, it took him 30 years to write the book. Can you imagine studying Isaiah for 30 years? And I'm sure he would say that he still has more to learn from Isaiah. <laughs> uh, but certainly even just a few weeks, uh, probably I have more questions than I have answers for you as I've been studying Isaiah. But ultimately, the book of Isaiah points to the Savior, right? It points to the one who will come Uh, and bear our sins uh, in our place. So uh, I hope that it's given you a hunger, and uh, you'll come back over the next few weeks as we look at actual uh, 
chapters in Isaiah, where we actually read the book of Isaiah. This has really just been setting the, the, foot, the steps. Um, so let me pray, and then I'll explain the surprise. Father, we are um, humbled at, uh, at you. We are humbled when we come to the book of Isaiah, and there's so much we need to learn, Father, to rightly understand your word. Um, and yet, at the same time, a child can come to Isaiah chapter 40 and receive comfort. And a child can come to Isaiah chapter 53, Father, and we can understand that, that you sent your son to die in our place so that we could be glorified, so that we could be with you, be rid of our sin and our pollution. Father, we thank you for the book. I pray you'd help us. I pray for the body, that you would build up the body, that you would take what has been... Um, said unclearly today, and that you would clarify it, Father, in, in our minds as we study. We need your help, Holy Spirit, to open our eyes to behold wonderful things from your law. So, Father, I, I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, well, we have a special uh, guest speaker this morning, uh, Mr. Caleb Helms. So, uh, today is Orphan Sunday. And I think that's all I'm going to say. I'm going to turn it over to Caleb. Do you have a microphone, Caleb? Okay, Caleb does have a microphone. I just want to turn, we're going to turn it over to Caleb for the, for the rest of Sunday school. Thanks, Caleb. Is this on? Okay, great. All right, good morning. Uh, who of you here is pro-life? Let's get charismatic. <laughs> Who of you has heard of the Texas Heartbeat Act? The Heartbeat Act was passed into law on May 19th, 21, here in Texas. It prohibits phys physicians from performing abortions when what they call a fetal heartbeat is detected. And that's usually around six weeks into a pregnancy. Who of you supports the Texas Heartbeat Act? And I'm not here to judge, just ask. Okay, now who of you has heard of the crisis down at the Texas border? The Texas border has seen a huge increase in border crossings in the past year. Just halfway through this year, law enforcement um, and the Laredo sector had apprehended 181% more illegal migrants than in 2020. And in El Paso, there had been an increase of 563% year over year. But that's not even the point. I'm not here to talk about illegal immigration. The cartels have realized it's much more profitable to smuggle people than drugs right now. And they have become heavily involved in what has become a billion dollar industry, smuggling people. That, in turn, has led to a sharp increase in human trafficking as people, even children, have become the commodity in the black market. Last month, Sheriff Bill Wayborn, who's the Tarrant County Sheriff, told my wife that there were 40,000 unaccompanied minors who recently have crossed the border. 40,000. Now, you might be wondering why I'm bringing up these current events and why I'm asking these questions. Today is Orphan Sunday, as Dexter said, and I'm going to help connect the dots between some of these real issues and the living out of our faith in Christ. As Christians, we believe all people are made in God's image, that we have a soul as well as a body, a soul that can never die. This leads us to a pro-life viewpoint where we believe that all human life is sacred and that we should protect the defenseless. But we often don't realize that this inevitably extends beyond limiting the number of abortions in our state. And it extends to caring for the vulnerable in any condition that they're in. Do your actions as of today show that you are pro-life or only pro-birth. There, uh, there are families who are trying to parent, living in brokenness and a poverty of relationships, 
that need the hope of the gospel and the support of believers to disciple them. There are women who cannot parent and who need an adoption plan. And there are defenseless children waiting for a family to adopt them. Now here's where we as Christians come in as supporters of life. When we care for widows and orphans who, not, who cannot care for themselves, when we strengthen families, especially broken families, so that they can keep their children, when we babysit for families who have adopted so that the husband and wife can strengthen their relationship and stay faithful to each other, when we help fund an adoption, when we adopt or foster, we are being pro-life. Now more than ever, particularly in Texas, there is a need for Christians to care for the weak and defenseless, a need for parents to adopt or foster. The border crisis has made human trafficking a much bigger problem than ever before, and the Texas Heartbeat Act has meant that many women who would have aborted and can't, and can't raise a child on their own will be putting that child up for adoption. While the pro-life issue is not new, we as Christians in Texas have a unique opportunity to be faithful and to take children from harmless and godless environments of abuse and neglect and share the gospel with them both in word and in deed. Now sometimes numbers can be helpful in quantifying the need, so I'm going to go over a few numbers. I couldn't find the number of waiting children in Tarrant County, but right now there are 196 waiting children um, who are ready to be adopted in the Arlington region, just east of Fort Worth. Did you know that there are 650 plus churches in Fort Worth alone? What would happen if just one family from each church stepped in to meet the need? In 2020, there were 2,048 children in foster care in Tarrant County. Also in 2020, there were 47,913 children in foster care in the state of Texas. Now where numbers fall short in describing a situation is that it can be hard to have an emotional response to numbers. And I'm an accountant, I get it. Uh, while the need is certainly beyond the capacity of the church alone, this is not so much a call to eradicate these numbers as it is a call to live, in, live a life of faithfulness to God. As Pastor Dan used to say, and he used to say this a lot, we are often educated beyond our obedience. Are you? This is not just an opportunity. This is a glorious calling. Luke 9, verses 23 and 24 says, And he, that is Jesus, said to all, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. Are you educated beyond your obedience? In a paraphrase of Matthew 25 in the section on the final judgment, when did you see the Lord hungry and feed him, or thirsty and give him a drink? And when did you see him a stranger and welcome him, or naked and clothe him? Or when did you see him sick or in prison and visit him? He who does this to the least of Christ's family has done it for him. We may say we're pro-life, but are we just pro-birth? This is ultimately a call to be more heavily, heavily rely on Christ through acting upon the truth of his word and letting that permeate our lifestyle in a way that extends beyond us and goes to the least of these. We are to be salt and light and to show God's love and grace to the world. 
James 1, verse 27 says, Religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction, and to keep oneself unstained from the world. The ministry of caring for orphans and widows isn't just another ministry of this church that you can choose to participate or not participate in. We cannot selectively choose the scripture that should change us. We are called to lay down our lives in God's service, not live lives with no risk in pursuit of earthly safety. In his book, The Cost of Discipleship, Dietrich Bonhoeffer said, the cross is laid on every Christian. The first Christ suffering which every, every man must experience is the call to abandon the attachments of the world. It is that dying of the old man which is the result of his encounter with Christ. As we embark upon discipleship, we surrender ourselves to Christ in union with his death. We give, our lives, we give over our lives to death. Thus it begins. The cross is not the terrible end to an otherwise God-fearing and happy life, but it meets us at the beginning of our communion with Christ. When Christ calls a man, he bids him come and die. It may be a death like that of the first disciples who had to leave home and work to follow him. Or it may, it may be a death like Luther's, who had to leave the monastery and go out into the world. But is the, it is the same death every time. Death in Jesus Christ, the death of the old man at his call. Whatever personal barriers or inconveniences you might have towards what I've said today, the end is simply faithfulness to God and communion and closeness to him. Also, there are a multitude of ways to get involved. It's not just one size fits all. And it, does, it doesn't have to be a massive commitment either. My wife and I often provide counseling and opportunities for how to be involved in the local community, and we would love to have a conversation uh, with you if you're interested in learning more about this and seeing how your capacity can fit the need. So again, how are you being faithful? Not your friend who needs to hear this. How are you being faithful? May we all follow him, not just in word, but also in deed. One final thing. I have this book. It's called Image Bearers. It's by Herbie Newell. And he's the director of Lifeline, which is the adoption agency that my wife and I have used. It's very Christian-focused. The subtitle is Shifting from Pro-Birth to Pro-Life, and I would highly recommend it. This is also a free copy to the first one who comes up after this. All right. We have announcements. I don't think so. I don't see that. <laughs> uh, I'm not an elder, just to be clear. <clears throat> Usually there's an elder in here. I guess there is no elder in here. Um, okay, well, um, uh, you, you've got a few minutes left. We can um, uh, look at your bulletin for announcements, fellowship with each other, um, and we'll go down to the worship service where uh, we'll worship with our lips and our hearts. All right, amen. <laughs>